Hello, and welcome to the Order of Unmanageable Risks. This is a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Max Haven, and I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Canada. And my name is Aris Komporos Afanasiu, and I'm a sociologist based at University College London. On this show, we speak to people whose research on or writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and to explore the way in which an economic system both produces and relies on anxiety. Our podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project with the support of University College London's Institute for Advanced Studies and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit anxious.community. So this episode, we're very pleased to be able to welcome uh, Professor Nicholas Rose, uh, Professor of Sociology in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London, and the co-director of a new center for society and mental health also at King's College. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. So I first became aware of your work quite early on in my academic career as an undergraduate student when I uh, read Governing the Soul, The Shaping of the Private Self, uh, which was in its second edition in 1999. Um, since then, you've published many, many articles and books uh, on questions of uh, the connection between biopolitics, uh, power relations in society, neoliberalism, including the politics of life itself, biomedicine, power and subjectivity in the 21st century and 2006. And most recently, uh, the book that we're gonna be talking about today, Our Psychiatric Future, uh, which just came out in 2018 from Polity, which uh, we uh, have been, we were just speaking before you joined us about how, how incredibly useful this book has been for our thinking around these connections between capitalism and anxiety that we're exploring. So it's a real, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to speak with you today. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad the book is useful. Uh, it's always the best thing about a book to be able to use it for something rather than just to read it for something, to use it, make connections between things, do things with it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's nice to know. Uh, I wondered if we could begin by then sort of linking this book to the work that you've done in the past. And if you can give us a sense of where this book our psychiatric future came from um, and how it fits with the, your, your past work and, and the work that you're beginning to do with the Center for Society and Mental Health as well. All right, uh, I will try and give you a relatively short version. I was <laughs> at, uh, at university between 1965 and 1968. Uh, and when I was at university, I had a number of friends who had what we would call here in the UK severe and enduring mental health conditions. They were going in and out of psychiatric hospital. Um, I also uh, did a course there in what was called abnormal psychiatry and I had read uh, uh, um, uh, Madness and Civilization and Ronald Lyon and all, all those kinds of things, became a bit of an anti-psychiatrist and actually ever since then an engagement with psychiatry, with what it is, with what it does, with how it works and what the problems are has, has been a, a kind of constant theme in, in my life. Uh, as well as the fact that for the last 40 odd years, I've lived with someone who 
is uh, diagnosed with uh, bipolar affective disorder and have a lot of friends in the psychiatric user and survivor movement. Uh, the first thing that I did, which was related to that, was working with a, a colleague of mine who I um, later did work on governmentality, Peter Miller. Uh, we taught a course on psychiatry and mental health, an evening course on psychiatry and mental health, which is the kind of thing that one did back in uh, the 1970s. And the result of that was a book published in 1986 called The Power of Psychiatry. Now, I have only written little bits about psychiatry over the period, quite a lot about psychiatry and risk uh, and so on, but um, I have been teaching psychiatry, mental health and the politics of psychiatry for all those years. And in fact, um, when I came to the end of what I thought I could usefully say about um, governmentality, which took a lot of my life, and I was looking for some other uh, focus, I wanted to write a sort of genealogy of psychiatry, a bit like those psychology books that you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, I realized that the most interesting thing that was going on in psychiatry was a return of biological psychiatry. Mm. I did, again, this is a legacy from my, from my past, uh, set up a network and a study group around that, which was called the BIOS Network felt that I needed to understand what was going on in the life sciences in general before being able to make sense of what was going on in psychiatry. That led to um, uh, uh, the politics of life itself, uh, to a, uh, some networks, a network called the Neuroscience and Society Network, um, a network called Neuro, where people starting working on the neurosciences started to get together, a grant from the ESRC to do work on the implications of neuroscience with a wonderful researcher called Joelle Abirachet, who's just written a fantastic book on uh, the first psychiatric hospital in the Lebanon. And in one way or another, uh, led to me feeling that I ought to write a book which tried not to do a, a sort of genealogy of psychiatry, because I think one could do that, but wasn't sure that that was going to be the most useful thing to do. Uh, but do something which was a kind of different sort of style of reflection on what was going on today. And that, that was our psychiatric future. Um, and I, that's why I was pleased at the beginning that you said you found it a useful book, because that's what it was meant to be. Extremely useful, extremely. And, it, you know, I think I, I, I picked it up very shortly after Aris and I began the project of which this podcast is a part which attempts to um, explore what has been framed uh, in the media and by university administrators and um, psychology and sort of psychological practitioners as a so-called epidemic of mental health among students on university campuses today. One of the things I appreciated so much very early on in our psychiatric future is the way in which you, with, with a great deal of nuance and care, problematize this discourse of the epidemic. And I wonder if you could just walk us through that. What, what is it that the, the notion of the epidemic, what work is it seeking to do and what, what does it make invisible and what, you know, what does it hide in some way? Okay, well, to talk about it now, of course, and we're talking in the midst <laughs> of, an, of an epidemic or a pandemic, and we're talking at a time when if you read the newspapers recently, uh, you will see articles saying there is another pandemic, and that's the pandemic of mental health problems. Mm -hmm. And when this pandemic is over of COVID-19, we will see the pandemic of mental health problems. So what work does that do to, uh, to, to answer your question? 
Well, a viral infection is a viral infection. Of course, it's much more than a viral infection. It's distribution across society. Those who are more vulnerable and less vulnerable, those who die and don't die, those who can do the work to keep out of it, etc. Uh, all that is highly socially distributed, as we know. But it implies that there's something which, if only we have a test, we can identify what that thing is, and that is a viral infection. And it implies that this viral infection moves across society and causes in and of itself obje an objective set of problems that demand our attention in various ways. And to be crude about it, I don't think what's going on in mental health generally and in student mental health is anything like that. So for there to be an epidemic of mental health, it requires that people uh, reframe a whole series of their unhappiness, their miseries, their anxieties, their, 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 their sense of despair, desolation, panic, etc., etc., as a mental health problem. And, and actually, I've just been thinking about this, this this weekend and wrote something about it to try and understand what's meant by calling something a mental health problem. I suppose it implies that that thing, that feeling, is a suitable case for treatment by certain kinds of experts equipped with certain kinds of knowledges. Now, I don't want to get into the debate of whether or not uh, the current generation of students are snowflakes who don't understand what it is to be a human being and that life is full of miseries and disappointments and tragedies and then you die kind of thing. Um, but at least I think there is something going on when all the, uh, the ailments that flesh is heir to in managing its everyday, managing our everyday life are turned into mental health problems. One of the things that's going on I don't really like this phrase, but I've used it on a couple of occasions, or borrowed it, is that it turns what I think is more aptly called social suffering into mental health problems. Mm. It turns things that are the responses, understandable responses of individuals to difficult or intolerable circumstances, which are socially distributed, um, and where the resources to deal with them are also so like financial resources, other kinds of support resources and so on. It turns that into an individualized problem requiring individualized treatment, which by and large focuses on the individual capacities of the person concerned to manage their lives in these difficult circumstances. So the circumstances, even though many people will say, oh, yes, there are all sorts of social conditions that provoke mental health problems, et cetera, et cetera. In a sense, those social conditions recede into the background once it becomes a mental health problem. I don't want, it's not medicalization in the conventional way of medicalization because many, many authorities are involved, not just all the psi professions, teachers, um, counselors, and, and we ourselves, uh, our students ourselves, coming to find this sometimes a very, um, a comforting way of making sense of their problems. You know, the number of students I have, I have spoken to who said, well, I was feeling absolutely terrible. And then I saw the psychiatrist and the psychologist and they said, I was on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I'm on the autism spectrum. Now I understand what my problem is. I've got a label for it. I can tell people what it is. I can take the appropriate treatment for it. I can explain my bizarre behavior to others and myself. So the label can be very 
supportive, but I still think it's problematic. I, I do want to come back to this, this question, which you, you parse in the book about, about how important uh, diagnoses can be uh, to those who are suffering, but also how problematic the whole diagnostic apparatus is. But before we, before we go there, I, I wanted to just um, follow up on, on something that you explore also in the book, which is the, the context of this social suffering, um, to continue to use that phrase, in neoliberal capitalism. And, and one of the chapters of the book, which is very compelling, you, you really outline the case that is made for, uh, by, by some uh, for understanding the, uh, what appears to be the rise in mental health affliction uh, in neoliberalism, but then also asking us to somehow problematize that, that sort of easy correlation as well. And I wondered if you could just sort of briefly walk us through that as, that as well. Okay, so I start from saying that I'm, uh, I, I dislike the term neoliberalism um, because I think it, it, um, it, uh, it is both a description and an explanation. What's wrong? Neoliberalism. Why is it wrong? Neoliberalism. You know, what can we do about it? Get rid of neoliberalism. And that's not, it's, it's a label that doesn't, has ceased uh, to, to help analysis, so, largely because there are so many different societies to which the term neoliberalism is applied, which look very, very different. And also because many of the things that people say are neoliberal uh, long preceded any neoliberalism individualization for instance so one of the arguments that people make when they're sort of say it's all the fault of neoliberal capitalism is saying neoliberalism uh, produces individualization um, but individualization if you go back through the history of, 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 of the sci sciences you're seeing individualization you're seeing ideas of individual responsibility and you're seeing attempts to transform individual capacities and so on you're seeing a massive individualization you know, for, for, for decades, if not for longer than that. Uh, and indeed, if you look at all the sort of history of the self or social histories, uh, long before the rise of neoliberalism, they'll say one of the characteristics of Western civilization is individualization. And of course, making a kind of dopey distinction between the West, which is individualized, and the East, where we're all communal, and China, which is all Confucian, and all those kinds of things. I think those things are too simple. But I think many of the ills that are blamed on neoliberalism go way, way before it and will succeed it and are not the result of any particular uh, socio-political project. There are things, even those I think preceded neoliberalism, for instance, a concern with the size of the state, privatization of, of public uh, utilities and so on. We see this going back to the new public management, which is kind of before uh, before neoliberalism, which which Peter Miller and I worked on a bit in in our in our work on governmentality and so on and so forth. So I would prefer to put the term neoliberal to one side and try and identify what it was in certain kinds of societies that was uh, that provided, if you like, the social substrate for these forms of, forms of suffering and unequally distributed that social, suffer, that social substrate uh, across, different, across different groups and unequally distributed the resources possible to deal with this across, across different groups. So, um, and then if you want to call that in the end neoliberal, then that's fine, but that's, uh, 
that's a description that comes at the end rather than helps you something that helps you cut in to understand the actual nature of the processes that are involved in producing this. Mm -hmm. And clearly in relation to um, mental Ill, Ill health and the rise of the, uh, the language of mental mental problems at least part of that is the rise of a profession you know, you to be an old-fashioned sociologist in a sense a profession that sees ills and wants to uh, uh wants to set them right sort of old old sociological ideas about moral entrepreneurship you see an awful lot of that right now in the, as we're in this in the in the covid pandemic uh, colleagues of mine who are extremely well-meaning who identify problems and say, right, there's going to be an epidemic of mental health problems. We're the people who can identify it. It will be a scandal if we don't look after the mental health of our children. So please allow us to come in and sort out this problem. You know, doing, doing well by doing good, you know? Um, and, I'm, I'm, and that transforms the problem, transforms what, in this particular case, what are completely understandable responses to often incredibly tough circumstances into problems that are a suitable case for treatment. I don't say that people should suffer these and, you know, say, well, that's, that's life, you know. Um, but I, I do say that they don't necessarily need uh, expert psychological attention precisely because it draws attention to, it, it focuses your attention on what's kind of what we can do for you rather than how we can transform your modes of being in the world and your relations with others and the forms of support that you can have in order to enable that burden to be shared and dealt with in a different kind of way. Um, and I suppose, you know, the lessons of this, uh, uh, you know, this is nothing novel if, if, for people who've been through uh, my history and my kind of age. You know, these are lessons from the feminist movement and uh, from the civil rights movement and so on and so forth. They're general lessons about how you avoid trans transferring what's actually a social ill into an individual problem. And you, 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 you put the emphasis very firmly where it is. To come back to this question of diagnosis and the categorization and segmentation of, of uh, what, gets, what gets framed as mental ill health or suffering, um, uh, and we were speaking a little bit a moment ago about the, the kind of solace that many people receive from having um, a concrete explanation for their experience and the experience that leads to such suffering in their life and in society. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you to kind of link this, this question of diagnosis to, on the one hand, the rise of a kind of, uh, over the last decades, of... Um, a kind of discourse of, of broken brains, that, that mental ill health can be explained by uh, neurological explanations. Uh, often uh, the proponents of this suggest exclusively or almost exclusively neurological explanations. And then um, if, if possible to kind of link that to the pressures and, and uh, promises of the pharmaceutical by a sort of psychopharmaceutical industry as well, which has, of course, a vested interest in presenting us with clearly defined diagnosable ailments that can be treated by a certain number of sort of molecules that are then filtered through a, what is, in fact, a huge global industry. Perhaps if we were looking back at our time from the, uh, from the end of the, this century, we would regard the psychodynamics explanations as a small blip in a much longer history in which people 
recognize that uh, problems of mental health are, uh, um, are ingrained in the body. But there's this idea that, uh, that um, mental illnesses, mental disorders are embodied. I mean, you only have to think of eugenics or you can go back further than further from the eugenics to, to, the, to the middle of the 19th century. This idea that they grow out in some way of, a, of an inherited constitution. And there's something in your inherited constitution that makes you more vulnerable to certain kinds of conditions. And then if you're in a provoking situation, or maybe your mother is in a provoking situation, she sees an, a, a, an accident with a horse and cart while she's pregnant with you, and then that's going to have consequences for you which are going to go throughout your whole life. So the idea that these things are embodied is not particularly new. And of course, those of us who read our Freud will know that Freud always thought that uh, his metapsychology would eventually find a neurobiological basis. Uh, read Freud's project, and he's very, very clear upon that. So uh, it's tempting to say that the organization, if I can call it that, the making of mental uh, disorders organic is a new thing, but it's not a particularly new thing. I think that the, the new thing is First of all, a transformation in our understanding of genetics. And secondly, uh, 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 the, the rise of new capacities to understand what is going on in the human brain, especially in the living human brain. Because the earlier attempts to understand what was going on in the human brain, which took regard, required a person to be crude about it, a person to be dead, uh, uh, to be diagnosed, to be dead, to have the brain taken out and look inside the brain to see if you could see anything going on with it, they proved to be spectacular kind of, kind of, uh, of failures. Um, so I think the broken brain view is not perhaps as new as it is. Perhaps the two things, as I say, are genetics, to see the brokenness, to see the pathologies of the brain in some way more directly linked, not just to the inheritance of a generic kind of constitution, pathological constitution, but to very specific gene sequences which are doing something specific to brain structure or function, to be able to visualize that or to believe that you can visualize that in the living brain. And at the same time as you're anatomizing the brain, to begin to see how you can address those little bits of the anatomy. So at the same time as you're beginning to say, right, well, the key thing in the brain are nerves and the synapses and the flow of neurotransmitters across the synapses into receptors, you then say, okay, well, how can one experimentally to try and understand those things, you're trying to intervene in them. As Lily Kay says in The Molecular Vision of Life and various others, biology becomes, from about the 1930s onwards, becomes an interventionary practice. You know by intervening, and that was very true in the brain. So the short version of that is that this, uh, this new molecular understanding of the brain, it, it arises in synchrony with, in fact, indistinguishable from the recognition that the more you know about the brain, the more you can intervene in the brain at the molecular level. The early researchers in the molecular structure of the brain were working in drug companies or working very, very, very closely with drug companies. So pretty soon by the 1960s, you've got this idea that all mental disorders were to do with disorders of the synapses. They were to do with disorders of neurotransmitters in the synapses. Each mental disorder group was allocated to a different 
kind of to dopamine, to serotonin, etc., etc., etc. It was a problem in the serotonin mechanism somehow, and then you could develop pharmaceuticals that would intervene in that mechanism. There was too much serotonin. There was too little serotonin. These these initial hypotheses, which were put forward just as uh, rough guides, somehow for about the next 50 years became almost mantras that all drug all drug psychiatric drug development was based on them. We now know that that's not at all how things work in the brain. The brain is a highly distributed system. The brain is a homeodynamic system. So if you intervene on one bit of it, another bit of it is going to change. And we also know that these much vaunted selective drugs, if they work at all, don't work because they're working on the, the pathway of the disorder. They work because of more general effects, sedative effects or whatever in the brain. So my view for what it's worth, and I do say this in the book, is that we're kind of reaching the end of that way of thinking about how brains work, the centrality of neurotransmission in understanding uh, 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 mental pathologies, the, uh, the search for drugs that will be specific to particular neurotransmission uh, anomalies, and then the fabrication of these drugs and the sending them out across the world. I mean, and Prozac was you know, the model for all these because it was a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. The idea that the more selective the drug was, the more targeted it was, the more effective it was. Now, I, I think these days most people would feel that if, if there are neurobiological correlates of the kinds of distress and disorders of affect and, and volition and so on, they're highly distributed across brains. And brains are highly dynamic uh, because of the way in which epigenetic changes are happening in the brain at, 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 at timescales of a millisecond as well as a, a decade. And that you know, this idea of specifically targeting, finding and targeting a spe the specific lesion, as it were, for a specific disorder, uh, that idea is beginning to be abandoned. And I, it pretty soon will be abandoned, I think, totally. You asked me about the way in which this uh, book related to my previous work. Mm. So, I mean, I love a lot of Michel Foucault's work, but the book I like most, or I learn from most, is Birth of the Clinic. And this is the lesson I always tell my students. Birth of the clinic shows that a very significant transformation, the birth of the clinical gaze, doesn't arise from one thing. It arises from the intersection of things that may seem very, very different. A new law of assistance that says you've got to go into hospital in order to get uh, in order to get free medical care if, you, if, you're, if you're a pauper, new modes of record keeping because uh, it, it's the French Revolution, everybody's a citizen, everybody deserves to have their records kept, new ways of comparing those records, new ways of teaching, etc. Five or six or seven different kind of trajectories come together to enable that transformation to occur. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, that's a lesson I've tried to sort of take into into the bits of work that I've done on psychiatry. But I think it's true for elsewhere as well. One of the, one of the thing, one of the chapters of the book um, examines the, the history and also the present of the interventions in this whole um, discursive and institutional framework of those who 
uh, are suffering with what are typically diagnosed or labeled or categorized as uh, mental health afflictions. And I wondered if you can give us a little bit of a sense about where things are at today uh, with, with the kind of activism of uh, mental, those who are categorized as suffering from mental health afflictions and what that maybe implies for, to use the book's title, Our Psychiatric Future. If I could just add to this, um, uh, Nicholas, it, you, it, it, there is something, there is a, towards the end of the book, you, you talk about another biopolitics being possible. And I, I was wondering then, because we are also kind of coming closer to the end of this, uh, of this episode, if you could talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Uh, okay, let, let me try and link those two things together in a way. So there's, there's a, of course, there's a very long history of activism, different sorts from people who've been, live under the description of a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, the movements, big movements, I think, came in the States in, in the 1960s and 70s, again, quite inspired by anti-psychiatry on the one hand, by the civil rights movement, by feminism or more generally, take your life into your hands, don't trust experts, you know, struggle for yourself, a very powerful book um, uh, called On Our Own, which argued that any, uh, any facility uh, where uh, psychiatric patients were uh, working with accredited experts would always have a power relationship because the, value, the views and beliefs of those psychiatric patients would always be seen by experts as potentially symptoms of their, of their disorder. And one can see a long history of activism which gradually begins where people, where people from the user and survivor movement gradually begin to question the efficacy of the drugs, to say, well, look, what you call the side effect, like the fact that I put, in, put on five stone in weight and I'm sleeping all day, that may be a side effect to you, mate, but it's not a side effect to me. Uh, that the long-term consequences, the drugs are not the same as the short-term consequences in a randomized controlled trial, that we're all multi-medicated anyhow. We're all, you know, if this drug doesn't work, add another one in, add another one in, add another one in, that actually you've got to attend to the real lives of, of individuals. And our experience, in our experience, if you claim to be doing something that's for the good of us, rather than for the good of society in general. You have to take our experience into, into account. Uh, so, um, you know, Basaglia, Franco Basaglia used to say that the, the tension between psychiatry as a, a practice of control and psychiatry as a practice of care runs right the way through that system. To cut to the, the present, I think if you read any of the reports, say in, here in the UK, the Lancet Commission, say the recent Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health, almost as a matter of course, it says we have to have people with lived experience of mental health problems on our committees. We have to have their opinion, etc., etc., etc. The challenge, I think, is what the role is of those of those people. If they're there to you know, give credence to the, uh, to the work of the experts. If they are there to say, yes, your, this bit of knowledge is good or this bit of knowledge is bad, even if they're there to say, well, these are our preferred outcomes, if the whole system is controlled by those who have that, those credentials and those, that expertise, um, then so-called co-production of knowledge becomes highly, highly problematic. 
we have moved a huge way uh, that you won't see a report these days that doesn't have people with lived experience in it. But the question remains the question of the power relations between those people with lived experience and those people who don't. The question remains whether the forms of knowledge that are to be, dealt, are to be used to understand mental health problems uh, are those from the psychological sciences or whether they are those of social suffering and the experience of people of social suffering. It, it's, a, it's a question of epistemic justice, you know, whose epistemic frameworks are going to be superior. Uh, and I think we're in the midst of that battle now. I know my friends who are much more involved in this from the user and survivor movement are incredibly demoralized, <laughs> exhausted. You know, it's very, very hard work. They get criticized by radicals for being co-opted by the system. They get criticized by the system to, by being told, oh, you're not representative. You're far too articulate to be an ordinary person with a mental health diagnosis, you know. So you're, you're, you're screwed if you, you're screwed both ways. So the question of, of a new biopolitics is this. Going back to Michel Foucault, Aris, I don't think Foucault, I remember Foucault said somewhere, it's not a question of being governed or not being governed. It's a question of being governed differently. So a new biopolitics is a question of being governed differently. It's a question of who has the authority of what are the strategies of what are the systems of knowledge and what are the objectives? Um, and a new biopolitics in the area of, of, of mental health and psychiatry would have different forms of knowledge, would have different strategies, would take different things as appropriate endpoints. Uh, if you just take a, one particular example, uh, certainly in the UK and, and internationally, there's been a big growth of the so-called recovery industry. So recovery used to be a very radical critique of the idea of cure in psychiatry. We're not looking for you, uh, we're looking to cure you. Cure becomes a certain kind of normalization. The recovery movement at its beginning said, no, we don't want to be normalized. We just want to be able to define what's a good life for us. You can't say it's a bad life because we spend five days in hospital. Maybe that's a good life for us. Maybe I need to spend five days in hospital. So your outcome measures for your research can't be the number of days we spend in hospital or whether or not we, we keep a job or whether or not we have a successful uh, as marriage and, and children and something like that. That's not the way to define uh, what we want. Unfortunately, the recovery movement has become very highly normative, very highly about individuals taking responsibility for their own life and so on. But one can think of a different way of recovery. I like to think of this a little bit in terms of Martha, Button, excuse me, Martha Nussbaum's notion of capabilities. What are the capabilities that people need to have to be able to define a life for themselves? And what resources do they need? What resources can they call upon and these are social and political and financial and collective resources to enable people to make a life for themselves uh, and, and to um, weather the storms that we talked about right at the very beginning so that they don't cast, so they don't transform everyday uh, misery into hysterical unhappiness, you know, so that they don't really derail you so that you can cope with feeling 
miserable with feeling that you haven't achieved what you want, with feeling exhausted, with feeling distressed about the breakup of a relationship, without feeling that that goes over into a, a, a kind of problem that needs specialist treatment. And, and, and so to build those capabilities, it seems to me, that's what I think of as a new, a new I call it a psychiatric biopolitics. My, my, my radical friends say this is a ridiculous idea. You can never expect psychiatrists to, to, to go along with that kind of idea and to put them, you know, and, and to think whether well, psychiatrists and there's urban planners and there's social workers and there's people with lived experience and we're all contributing just equally to these debates. That, that ain't never going to happen. And they are probably right. But uh, I like to end on a bit of a hopeful note. And I do think things are. I do think things are happening, and I don't think biopolitics is all about domination. My friend Peter Miller, who I mentioned before, worked on psychi radical psychiatry. He went to Michel Foucault's lectures, uh, and, and we talked together back in the 1970s, wrote our first book together. His first book, his PhD thesis, was called Power and Domination, and said, try to show very clearly that there is always power but there's not always domination. There are forms of power that are enhancing, that are supportive, that are creative. Uh, and there are forms of power that crush and make, make, don't make change possible. So that's my last, my sort of hopeful note. It's a, it's a great place to end the <laughs> discussion, but of course there's, there's so much more that I would love to, to chat with you about and ask you about. The book is, is really, I, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, a really, for me, it's been a really invaluable guide to understanding many, many different debates and their intersections. And yeah, pondering through this, this dense knot of questions that has such, such a great amount of consequence for so many people's lives. And, and really, I think, ultimately, for how we, how we think about our psychiatric future in the broadest sense, as, as thinking, feeling, passionate, imaginative beings on a shared finite planet who somehow have to make like uh, figure out ways to live together and uh, and and be in this world so um, thank you for it and, th and thanks so much for joining us thanks for the questions there's so much more to say but let's hope the book is a bit of a provocation to people to say why didn't he say something about that and do it a bit better <laughs> next time thanks <laughs> So yeah, just a couple of quick thoughts. I mean, I couldn't help thinking what those new uh, collective capabilities uh, might be in the context of the university setting, the university as an institution, as an anxious institution. So I, 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 was, I was kind of trying to think of um, what a new psychiatric future for the anxious university might look like um, and what and especially what might be, wh whether there are any, any seeds of that um, uh, sort of alternative uh, biopolitical model uh, that are already, kind of, we can already observe. Um, so yeah, and, and that links to the other, the, the issue of naming the problem that we have both been talking about uh, recently. Uh, naming the condition, if you like, so that if this is a mental health health crisis, a mental health epidemic, you know, if this is a way to kind of individualize uh, and abstract uh, the problem, then 
is there anything that those labels that Nicholas said in the beginning, the label of, you know, being on the spectrum or the label of having being a mental health patient, is there anything that it does that can be, can lead, can lead young people in university to formulate a, a kind of more collective understanding of their problem? Uh, so yeah, it's a kind of more provocative uh, twist of those suggestions and thoughts that Nicholas was developing that I'm very interested in in exploring more and 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 and, and researching more um, with students. Yeah, I agree. I think I think this coming year, and, and we're recording this interview on June twenty second of twenty twenty. To take up maybe Nicholas's optimism in a certain way, I uh, I think that there is in this coming year will be will be remembered perhaps as a turning point. Um, and of course, like any turning point, there is a kind of a genealogical or historical slippage where we attribute to one particular moment and often very particular people uh, a pivot of history. But I think, of course, the, the roots of it go much deeper and the branches of it will go much into the future. I think what we're going to see, especially with student mental uh, ill health, is that already universities are extremely concerned as they move to online teaching uh, in the fall of 2020, in light of the pandemic, that uh, students are uh, going to be demanding various mental health services uh, to be able to sustain them while they're trying to study in extremely adverse conditions. You know, people living with their parents or living in unideal situations, lack of access to technology, uncertainty about the future, uh, lack of access to paid work if students are working during their studies. There's a million extra stressors um, that the new, this new moment of, of mental health on campus or off campus as it is in, in the case in the fall uh, are gonna introduce. There are some stressors that are being um, removed, like many people suffer a great deal of anxiety when with the prospect of speaking in front of their peers and classrooms and so on. But universities in general are extremely concerned that uh, students as they move to online teaching and learning uh, will, not, will not stick it out for the term, that they'll drop out because of uh, anxiety, stress, uh, depression, and other, other forms of suffering. Um, and so the universities are very keen to set up new services that, that really, I think, try and in some way railroad students into these kind of diagnostic categories that can be then assigned a particular psychopharmaceutical remedy or a, a particular treatment path. And I think what we're going to see is that at the level of students themselves, there will continue to be a resistance to this. At the, at the same time as students will increasingly demand uh, more care from the institution, um, from the university, they will also refuse the categories of that care. This would be my prediction. Um, and I think there's something very interesting that will happen in a moment when the demand from students is for care, for an attention to the unique conditions and unique suffering of each person, and yet also at the same time a refusal of the instrumentalization of that care for the purposes of reproducing the university. Because ultimately what the university cares about is that those people stay in their courses, that they complete their degrees, that the university is successful by all of the metrics by which the anxious university is disciplined and measured today. Uh, but that's not what students necessarily care about. And I think students increasingly 
are going to be linking their anxiety, their, um, their suffering, and the lack of care to the broader problems of the society of which they're a part. This, this would be my prediction, that in some way, the struggle against the university and the struggle against the uncaring university is a struggle against an uncaring society. Um, and I, I, I suspect we'll be able to see this in amongst the years to come. But yes, that's just my prediction. And with all predictions, who knows? No, and I think, you know, it's a, I, I, was, I was thinking as you were saying this, that maybe something else that might be happening is that while the university is withdrawing sort of its physical presence uh, from, uh, from the kind of uh, education landscape. So the phys as, as the university becomes more virtual and less physical, part of those caring structures is also kind of disappearing. Or, you know, if it's all rendered online, then to some extent I can't help thinking that some of this caring side of the university or this seemingly caring side will also be put in question into question so you know that it would be interesting to see what that will do that what that withdrawal might do to those more critical uh, understandings uh, among students around you know what the university has been trying to do through its involvement in uh, in that mental health crisis but again you know it, this also remains to be seen i think you know it'd be really fascinating to to watch mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think maybe some of the early signs we can already begin to see in you know the 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 uprisings that have started in minneapolis and spread around the world uh around uh the the kind of a resurgence of black lives matter um the efforts to take down statues i think already in these movements we're beginning to see forms of peer support and alternative uh, what might, we would maybe categorize or would be categorized as alternative mental health supports and alternative forms of care are being built and sustained within those movements uh, in very interesting ways by young people. Um, yeah, it'll be a very interesting year to come, I think. Indeed. So, and on this note, I think we've come to the end of uh, yet another episode of The Order of Unmanageable Risks. Uh, my name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiou and along with Max Haven, we produce this podcast. For more information, you can head over to anxious.community for comments and also more information about our speakers and their work. And until next time, this is goodbye from us. Bye now.